Now, the book of Hebrews is in itself a little bit unusual in that, as far as I can find out, it's probably the book of the New Testament that we've got the least idea of who actually wrote it. Most of the other books, there's a fair amount of agreement from the people who study this sort of thing that, oh, yeah, this bloke wrote that one, or this person, or the, it was to, for this reason, to, from this person to this person. This is what it was done for. Whereas Hebrews seems to be a little bit of a mystery. There are some of the uh, commentators that I looked at and read who sort of say, oh, Paul wrote it definitely, and then you go and look up another one and find out that just as definitely he didn't. So there seems to be a little bit of a mix-up about it. But what it's about, though, there's not a lot of disagreement, and that is it's about how important Jesus is. It's about... It's, it's, a, it's a sort of a... a um, Almost like, if you could put it in the mod, in modern terms, like it's a pol almost like a political statement saying, no, 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 this is, this is the message, this is what's so important. And my role in this is to have a look at, at chapter 2 in particular. Now, this is, the, this is the little aside thing that I've got. When looking at this, I went chapter 2. Okay, oh, good, okay. So that would be the one after one and the one before three. Okay, and I don't really have a lot of options other than that. Okay, all right then. I'll look at chapter two. And one of the things that's been bouncing around in my brain, and there's plenty of you who would say that, well, there's plenty of room in there, so it you know, bounces around the head there, so it's, it's got space to bounce, but it's been bouncing around in my brain for a, a few days now. And I keep getting this nudge that maybe this is something that somebody in here needs to hear. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But in looking at this, usually when, when I share a message, I like to sort of, okay, let's follow it where it goes. Let me think about it. Let me, yeah, okay, what are the things that you know, I may never have noticed about this before? But I had to do chapter two of Hebrews. I didn't get that chance to go, okay, let's just follow this and see where it goes because it's got to go to chapter two of Hebrews and it's got to stay there. That's what I've got to do. And then for, I can't really work out why. And again, this, I could, it's a good thing the vicar's not here because she'd be rolling her eyes when I start this little bit. But I started to think about an interview with a musician I saw many years ago. I get, I know, and I confess this before my brethren here, but I get, I get really giggly about how they make music and about the process and about the songs that I'm familiar with and oh, okay so when they did it this is what they were thinking and blah 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 blah. I get all giggly about that stuff and I watch stuff about it and interviews and all that and all the rest of it and I watch them alone because there's nobody else in the house who has the slightest interest in it but still but one of these things that came back to me was that the the guitar player out of U2 who I think is is one of the few who goes very close to being a genius I remember him being interviewed once and he said, look, one of the things that they decided to do on a particular record or recording, was he said, look, we wanted to do it this way and we decided we're going to lock in these particular elements of it. And he said, one of the things that really, though, he found was when you lock something in, it forces you to look at what you've got in a new way and it forces you to be more creative he said, so that's actually when creativity and when something new and some sort of revelation, if you will, can come to you, was when you go, no, I'm locked in on this. I can't change this. And it's just been bouncing around in my head that that, that for me, I needed to, okay, now what am I looking at here? 
I needed to look at it afresh. And it just has kept ringing in my brain that maybe for someone here, there's something that you're locked in on and it's been annoying you. There's something or yeah, that might be a, 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 an employment thing, it might be a physical thing, it might be a relationship thing, I have no idea. But it might be something where you've been going, I'm locked in on this and it's been grinding your gears a bit or you've been getting frustrated about it and you've been thinking, I don't want to be locked in on this. And it could be just perhaps that there's a word of God from you saying, hang on, don't look at that, that rigidity, that, that, that structure you've got, that, that thing that you're pushing against or kicking against in that way. Maybe this is a time that you've just got to accept that and start going, okay, let's look at it afresh. Or let's get more creative about this. So view it in a different way. That's just a, you know, a bit of an aside. But Hebrews 2. Anyway, back to, back to what I really should be talking about. And the basic summary of this is that the, the author, whoever they are, is comparing Jesus to the angels. And I will again confess that, oh, okay, we're comparing Jesus to angels. Well, you've really um, scored a big one there, haven't you, Rod? Well done. You've got, the, you've got the good one to talk about there. Thanks very much. But then I started to look at it afresh. So it starts off with basically saying, yeah, okay, Jesus is better than the angels. And then it spends 18 verses explaining that in more and more detail now we'll get to why that's important in a minute but there's a couple of observations in the first four verses I kept reading them and I kept going you know what yeah this is this is worthy of comment in our first four verses of the chapter in verse one it says there that we should pay most careful attention therefore to what we've heard okay so here's someone Saying, yeah, okay, we've got to, yeah, hang on, listen here, listen up, come on, listen up. Why? Now, here's the interesting thing, why? And the translation I've got here, or, well, yeah, the one there. Or we may drift away from it. Listen carefully, listen carefully, hang on, listen, listen, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Why? And then it's kind of a surprise, so that we, yeah, or we may drift away. Not that we will reject it. Not that we will throw the toys out of the cot or tip over the Monopoly board or whatever, but that we'll drift away. And it seems a strange thing here. Hey, listen, listen, listen. Otherwise, you'll drift. It's not listen, listen, listen. Otherwise, that you'll reject this. Otherwise, you'll be angry about it. Otherwise, that you'll get a misinterpretation on a theological issue. No, it's otherwise you'll drift. And it's interesting that the image there that's used is of people just slowly, almost unintentionally, leaving where they should be it's not that they're just going no you're an idiot and i'm not having anything to do with you it's just that now i'm just going to slowly drift away not really with any intention either drifting's not intentional really but we slowly drift away and it's not expressed that there's a concern for the people who go get stuff don't want to know about you it's the concern for the people who are there and then they drift and I think that is also something, that's something that really struck me. I thought, yeah, gee, how important is that? How important is it for us who hear the message to guard against that drifting? Just kind of taking things for granted, being too busy. We need to look at for that. And the second thing that really struck me is nestled in verses 3 and 4. And it's, again, something that uh, 
again, is, is bouncing around, and, and I sort of initially dismissed it, but it kept coming back to me, kept, I kept noticing it. And it says there in verse 3 and 4, that the news of salvation in Christ, and these are where this message about Christ came, and they came in, and there's three things that the author says. He said, first, that it was spoken by God. In, in the, the NIV, it basically says, um, the salvation which was announced by the Lord. Okay, so first it was spoken. God spoke it. And it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles. And I think there again is a message, perhaps for someone here, perhaps just for all of us to, to consider. If you think God is speaking to you, and as particularly if you're thinking God's making a comment to me about a major issue, if you've got a major decision, then there's three things. Firstly, has God spoken to you about it? Do you think that somewhere in your heart, through the word, through your reading, has God spoken? Secondly, has it been confirmed? By, by other people. So if you put this idea to somebody and say, hey, look, I think God's telling me to whatever, whatever it might be, are they going, really? Or are they going, hang on, I can see that. And finally, is it testified to? Is there something about it that makes you go, oh, hang on, wow. Gee, I didn't, yeah, that's worth noticing. If those three things happen, then that's, that's a, a pretty good test that, you know, that God's speaking to you. But after those little introductory asides, a few of them there really, we then start getting into the, the, the guts of the chapter. And the main thing that then the, the author starts talking about, after saying, you know, just be careful you don't drift away, this is important, this is important, and here's a few tests for you. He talks about Jesus being superior to the angels. Now, for us in the 21st century in Australia, Jesus being superior to the angels is not really a big ticket item. The only time that we really look at or think or talk about angels really is at Christmas time and they're on the top of the tree. And we'll see nativity scenes or something with the shepherds watching their flocks by night and there's the, you know, the picture of the angels there. And it's, you know, yeah, okay. Oh, the angels were pretty thrilled. That's great. Nice one. But we don't really talk about angels. We don't re it doesn't really mean much to us. Jesus is bigger than the angels. Yeah, okay, really well done, champion. That's great. Okay. There's not much more than that. So to us, it doesn't mean a lot. The question, though, is what did it mean to them? What did it mean to the people that this letter was written to, to the Hebrews? What does it mean to them? Is this another, oh yeah, Christmas tree kind of thing? Or is this something where we need to go, oh, hang on. Maybe there's something in this. Now, I've chosen just a few examples of what it might have meant to them. So I started to look into, okay, well, angels. It's saying, basically, if you want to understand the second chapter of Hebrew, it's Hebrews, it's basically that Jesus is, is more important, more significant, more powerful, more, hey, take notice of, than angels. And for us, we go, well, okay, given that I don't take any notice of the angel, even you know, when the kids fight about it on the Christmas tree, and maybe it's up there with the tinsel that I've got to re-wrap up the stupid kids throw it on the tree or whatever, then yeah. But to them, 
does it mean? Now, the first mention of angels in the Bible, and this is to the Hebrews, so this is to people who know this. The first mention of angels was a, a, a version of an angel or type of angel, I'm not really up on my angel theology, called a cherubim. And in Genesis 3, right back in the beginning, something that is embedded into this, these people's culture, God places an angel on one of the sides of the Garden of Eden when he banishes Adam and Eve. That's the first time angels are mentioned. Is that God says there's a cherubim there and an angel with a sword was there to guard it to prevent Adam and Eve getting back into the Garden of Eden. Now these people know this. So the, the angel is not just a messenger from God. The angel is an enforcer of God. Basically, you know, I'm telling you to get out, but just in case, there's this bloke here and he's got a sword. And you even think you're getting back in there. And the obvious will happen. So, firstly, there's a, there's a few things we can gather from that. Firstly, well, the angels are basically hearing direct from God. You're a Hebrew, you're going, oh, okay. They're right there. And the angels are the enforcers. The angels are a bit like Dirty Harry. I'm showing my age there, but the angels are a bit like Dirty Harry with the 44 Magnum handgun. And you don't mess with them. And that's the first, that's the first we hear from the angels. They're not to be messed with. Don't stuff around with the angels. Now, if you're God's enforcer, then you're important. And it starts to put, give a little bit of context to, so Jesus is more important than that. Okay, that's an attention grab. It's not for us necessarily, but for the people who are listening or reading this book. They're going, okay. Now, pretty much the next or very soon after, in Genesis, and I'll just go through a couple of these, God uses angels in Genesis 16 and Genesis 18. And again, we see these themes. He talks to Hagar and he talks to Abraham. Now, again, without getting into it too much, the Jews regarded basically Abraham as, as like the father of the faith. He is numero uno. If you're reading the Torah and if you... Now, the Torah is just basically the first five books of the Old Testament. And in Jewish culture, they're vitally important. You can be examined on them. It's part of their tradition and culture of scholarship. There's a reason why Jewish people dominate universities in the Western world. Because they have this culture of scholarship that you need to learn this stuff. And so it's embedded and imbued in them. And they know it. And they know Abraham, he is, he's up there. He's, he's one of the, yeah, he heard from God. He's a father of the faith. Now, how does Abraham hear from God? Well, if we have a quick look way back in old Genesis, about chapter 14 and chapter 18, I think we've got it here, chapter 16 and 18, my apologies, I think it is, that if I looked in Genesis and not Exodus, Exodus it would even be a lot, lot better and more accurate. Now, basically, there's two there's two incidents talked about here. One is that the angel talks with a woman called Hagar. Now, Abraham was an old man. 
And he and his wife had had no children. Again, at that time and place, that was just shattering. You wanted kids. Kids for them weren't, oh, I've got to get another kid, I've got to get up in the night. They were, that was how you measured basically wealth, impact and blessing was in your kids. And they hadn't had any. And so Abraham's wife said, look, I've got this pretty good looking servant lady. I can't have any kids, so go to town. Okay. And Hagar, the servant, conceives and this is going to be Abraham's child. Now, funnily enough, or maybe not funnily enough, Sarah, Abraham's wife, is very, very jealous and Hagar runs away. But then Hagar and her running away is arrested and spoken to by God. How does God speak to her? Through an angel. This is one of the central events for the Jewish and Hebrew people. How does God do it? Through, there we go. The angel said to her, where have you come from and where are you going? As if, I do not know. I'm running away. And the angel gives Hagar some instructions. And Hagar doesn't even really question. They're not really, <laughs> the, the, uh, the angel gives her some news that's not really great. She tells her, well, the child you're carrying, carrying is going to be a braying donkey of a man or whatever, which is what you want to hear about your kids. But the angel is not questioned. Okay? Quickly moving on now. To chapter 18. Abraham himself then has a meeting with angels. And it's, it's a strange chapter that basically that these visitors, the three visitors to Abraham are believed to represent Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But Abraham, the father of the faith, how does he know that God's speaking to him? Because an angel speaks to him. If you look in chapter 18, I'm going through this very quickly I'm, because we've got a couple more to get to. But basically, this is Abraham, the father of the faith. When does he know what's going on? When an angel speaks to him. It's not when he thinks that he hears a word of the Lord or anything like that. It's when an angel speaks to him. And so again, for these readers, oh, yeah, angels are big, big ticket. Now, what's the key point? Is that angels are very, very close to God and they enforce for God. Tell me, for a Hebrew, what's more important than that? Pretty much only God himself. Other than that, nothing. So when this writer is saying Jesus is actually not just up there with the angels, but more important, he is saying something that is quite astonishing. For us, it's, huh. for them, it's what? Now, you might think, well, yeah, even for these guys, though, Abraham's, you know, hundreds of years before we're talking, before this is written. This is, this is old history for them. No, it's not. And I'll demonstrate why. If we start to get closer to home for the, the readers of this book, we start to move to Matthew chapter 1. We start to move to something else that they know quite well. And for us, is really worthy of making a note of. In Matthew chapter 1, it starts off, and it's, it's a very Jewish book, and so the Jews are very into, who's your father, who's your mother, oh, you're from that side of the family, oh, I can't know you. But it goes through the genealogy of Jesus, but then what it does straight away is it then 
talks about, well, how did Jesus come about? We're talking about his ancestry and now we're talking about him. And where does it start? Straight away, in, after it's gone through the genealogy, in about, I think it's about verse 17, 18, around there. An angel, again, comes into the picture. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, as it says there, was, he had a fiancée, Mary. But before they were married, she was found to be, as it says here, pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And again, in the nativity scenes and at, at Christmas, we go through, we go through that. And we, we brush over it, oh yeah, okay, righto. But we need to stop and we need to put ourselves in Joseph's shoes or in his sandals. Because let's just stop and, stop and think about that. If you were in the year 2020 in Australia and you were engaged to someone, and ladies, you might have to, well, we can all put ourselves in this position, you're engaged to someone, but you know that you haven't got a pregnant and she comes up to you and says, I'm pregnant, then in this time and place, that's not great news. That's not what you're wanting to hear. And in fact, it might even be grounds for a bit of, I don't think I want to marry you anymore. It might just. It might be a bit of a rocky start to the relationship from then on. It might be, there's a few things, if we really put ourselves in those positions. You imagine, though, that if you are engaged, oh, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe it's me, maybe it's my cynicism, but I think that I would be a little bit scoffing of that one. I don't think I'd take that well. I don't think that I'd go, oh, of course, my darling, the Lord must have visited you at all. That wouldn't be where I would head with this. I would be thinking, not only are you, but you're also lying. Do you really think Joseph was any different? Do we really, really think? And because that's in, a, in 2020 in Australia. In about 4 BC in Palestine, if we go through and do a bit of study of Leviticus and the Jewish law and all that sort of stuff, we would find this is more than just a bit of a socially awkward remark. This is much more than that. This is, at, at best, lifetime disgrace. And that's a best-case scenario for Mary. That is a best-case. And it is, as our theologians down the front have already worked out, it is, in worst-case scenario, it's a, it's a death sentence. This is not something to be sneezed at, scoffed at, or be put on you know, reality TV. This is, this is serious. Now, Joseph, like pretty much, well, every man ever, would probably have been, hang on, and as it says there, and it's, it, it says that because he was such an absolutely great guy, he was going to divorce her quietly. Basically, <laughs> I don't want to know about you anymore. And again, that was basically an incredibly, incredibly generous 
kind measure from him. He had shown his kindness right then. But then something changes. Something that he could not... He, yeah, even when we're talking about impossibility, because really that's what we're talking about. So you're saying that you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. I know how people get pregnant. Mm-hmm. But you're saying, no, you didn't. Mm-hmm. And you're saying the Holy Spirit... Yeah, okay. Yeah, good. Let's talk, our, let's talk Mary through about how many times that's happened before. Oh, that's right, we just did, because it never has. So we don't have to talk about it at all. And you would imagine that he would have been hurt, to put it mildly, betrayed, disgraced, humiliated. And what's she thinking? We'll find out in a minute. But it all changes. Why? He doesn't just have a dream. A dream's not going to be enough to change your mind on this. I could have all the dreams in the world, but I'm not, if I'm Joseph, I don't care. But what happens an angel? Basically, the only thing that could have changed Joseph's mind, the only thing that could have stopped him was an angel. The only thing important enough because an angel means God's talking. And we so often just read over this, but we hang on. This the what an angel. So Joseph's got a path trodden out, and, and it's the right path. And then an angel speaks. And you can imagine basically Joseph then puts his hand up for humiliation, discussion. Oh, oh you, Joseph, good to meet you. Oh, he's that. Oh, Joseph. Oh, he's put himself up for a lifetime of that, but he's willing to do it. Why? Because an angel spoke to him. It wasn't just a dream, it was an angel spoke. And he goes on from there. Now, it doesn't end there for poor old Joseph. Joseph's a bit of a tank, I must admit. Now, what happens then is if we look further into into chapter 2, basically... Jesus is born. We have the, the visit from the Magi. They come in and they, they, they give the, the gifts, you know, the gold, frankincense and myrrh and all the rest. You know, what do I want with myrrh and all the rest of it? But what happens then is then in the middle of the night, an angel appears to Joseph and says, you've got to go to Egypt because there are people out there who want to kill this kid. You've got to go to Egypt. And again, we go, oh, okay, you know, Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt, right up. But if you read it carefully and you start thinking, okay, what was it like for them? What does it mean for them? You start thinking about it. What would it take if something woke you at midnight tonight and basically said, right, now, you've got to go and drive, well, let's say an equivalent trip in time-wise, you've got to go and drive to Perth. Let's get going right now. Now, I can imagine that only, only the most absolutely pressing of things would make you get out of your bed at midnight tonight and start heading to Perth. It would take one heck of a lot for you to do that. And here's the thing. You can do that and you can do it, one, quite safely and two, 
with things like money. If you've got money in your bank or a credit card, okay, or okay, well, I can just pack the car with some clothes and what I need and away I go. Remember that at this time and place, and remember from on, was with the parable of the Good Samaritan shows it very, very clearly with what was put on the screen before. If you're going to pack up and go, there's no banks on the way to get money for food. There's no credit card that you've got. If you're packing up and going, you've got to take enough money with you to last as long as it takes. Now, you're not just going to be driving in a car with a whole heap of money. You're going to be walking with a whole, with everything you've got. Now, you're not going to do that on a whim. You are incredibly, so you go into a foreign country, you probably don't speak the lingo, and you're going to be carrying a whole bunch of coin with a donkey or two, and your kid. Yeah, right. Tell me what it would take for you, those of you who've had kids and those of you who know what it's like getting kids up in the middle of the night, to grab your your newborn kid, your wife, and enough money and then start walking for a few days in the middle of the night. I'll bet if I knocked on your door at one o'clock this morning and said, right, let's go, you probably wouldn't be saying, excellent, Rod, I'm enjoying your theological uh, putting into place of your message. Yeah. No, get stuffed, I'm not going. And you'd be right. And yet here, Joseph, we, and we read over it like, oh, okay. We don't stop and go, hang on, what would it have taken? The only thing that would convince someone to do something like that would be an angel. It would be, hang on, God's talking right now. And so he does it because why? Because it doesn't get more important than this. And we notice it a little bit later in the chapter that he doesn't come back until the angel tells him to come back. And we go, well, out of Egypt he called his son. Okay, good. And he does so immediately, Joseph. He doesn't question. That's important. Now, also, we see the other side of this, and I, I won't go into it. We've, I've gibbered for long enough now. But... We see the other side of this in the first chapter of Luke, in the first couple of chapters of Luke, where Mary, she hears from God and basically, again, she accepts what's happening. Why? Because it's an angel. She accepts that, okay, if this, if this is not exactly what I want it to, you know, what this angel is saying, I'm in for a, my life could be either one very short or two, a long one of disgrace. But okay. I'm going to cop this. Why? Because an angel spoke. And we also see very quickly in Luke chapter 1, the angel appears a couple of times and he appears to one of the priests, Zechariah. I won't go through it now. But basically, Zechariah asks the angel a very, very logical, reasonable question. And how does the angel respond? Here we go. Yep. Zachariah's gone into the tabernacle. He's gone in and he's given the offering. And then an angel's appeared. Now, Zachariah, like Abraham, hundreds of years before, wants kids. And Zachariah is then spoken to by an angel, a bit like Abraham, and said, God's going to give you kids. And he asked the logical, straightforward question. How? How's that going to happen? Because I'm pretty old. And so she. Now, that's not an unreasonable question. And it goes on then that basically the angel answers, because you've even questioned me, you are not going to be able to speak until the birth of this kid. 
It wasn't like he was saying, oh, I'm not going to do that. It wasn't like he was, he was just going, but, but how? A reasonable question. And the angel is saying, you're not talking again until the kid's born. Because you've even asked the question. Because you didn't immediately just go, okay. Now, when we sum this up and we go, okay, the angels, Christ is more important than the angels. We need to look at it from this point of view, from these people. Christ, when he compares to the God's enforcer, Jesus is more important. To the one who says, pack up everything you own, get on a donkey and go to another country where you don't know what's going to happen and do it right now. Don't even question, just go. Jesus is more important. When you make not just astonishing claims, Jesus is more important. When you make impossible claims, I'm having a child and I haven't, you know. Jesus is bigger. And so to wrap it up here, when we look at the second chapter of Hebrews... Basically, anything you can think of, Jesus is bigger. Jesus is more important. Jesus, yeah, it all goes into second place behind this. Because if, if, if Jesus is more important than the angels, then he's basically more important than everything. And that's the message of the second chapter of Hebrews. That's what the writer, and, it's a, and a, to those people reading that 2,000 years ago, they're going, what? Mind blown. That just can't be right. But it is. That's right. Jesus is bigger. And the thing to remember is that even though he's so big, what's the worry? Drifting away. Back at the beginning. So that is pretty much all I've got to say about that. Just remember, people, that Jesus is bigger. I'll just close in prayer. Come on up, Troy, and we'll do a song to finish up. But before we do, Heavenly Father, just thank you that right throughout your word, that it, it, it points to Jesus and that Jesus is bigger. And Father, I just pray for us here that we can remember that Jesus is bigger than our insecurity, Jesus is bigger than our fear, that Jesus is bigger than our problems and that Jesus is bigger than the insurmountable things that, that sometimes can overwhelm us. Father, help us to understand that more deeply and Father, help us to, to remain sharp on that and, and to take notice of the things that we hear so that we will not drift away. And we pray this, and we pray for a blessed week in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty.